song leader, there you go. Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, we are glad that you're here. It is good to be here tonight out of anywhere on earth that I'd rather be. It wouldn't be anywhere on earth. It'd be heaven except for here. And I'm glad that you chose tonight to be here. Priorities are important in life. Great lives are made up of great priorities and sticking to them. What a blessing it is to be together to study God's Word tonight. I hope you open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter. The last several weeks, we've been walking through the church building before services, and you see a lot of young soldiers and young ladies serving Christ, and they're giving their all uh, to be and to be trained and to grow and to learn of what God would want them to be. And we're so thankful for you. Uh, we're thankful for your heart that you'd be here. We're thankful for your parents and those that would see that you're here. And we're thankful for the adults that are working with you. Truly, we must never cease to be serious about investing in growing our young people to be dedicated to the work of the Lord's kingdom. There's no greater work than we can train them in. And I'm so thankful that we have young people here that truly want to be trained in that way. And what a blessing that it is. Adamir gone calves. In November, he was 59 years old. He's a bricklayer that lived in Brazil. He did something in 2009 that very few people have ever done. It's really amazing when you think about how many billions of people have lived. And just not that many have ever done what he did. Although he was late, he walked into his own funeral service. You see, the reality was that there was a horrible car accident and there had to be an identification made. Two of his uncles said they weren't for sure if that was him, but his aunt and four of his closest friends declared that it was him. In Brazil, they have a custom that they bury the dead the day following the passing. Adamir had spent the entire night in a truck stop drinking sugarcane liquor. That might be why they thought he was in a bad car accident if he had a reputation like that. But the next morning, by the time he made it out of the truck stop and back into civilization, he learned of his own passing. He found out where his funeral was and he rushed, trying to stop them before they would do that but he was too late, and the service was well underway. And so he got to attend a portion of his own funeral service. When we think of resurrection, we think of life after death. And you see, there's not anybody here that says, oh yeah, I remember so-and-so that died a few weeks ago, and now he's alive. She's alive. They walk the streets. You see, the resurrection, although it's at the very core of our Christian faith, and a resurrected Christ is at the very core of why we believe in the great resurrection, the resurrection is a very unique and beautiful topic. And as we think about soul focus for the year, and then in the evenings as we think about our mailbox series, it's important for us to think about the resurrection because it's real. Your soul will spend an eternity somewhere. And Paul writes a passage in 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, that I'd like for us to study together tonight. You remember the people of Thessalonica, 
If you go back and you read some in Acts the 17th chapter, the first half of the chapter, you see that Paul came into town and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue and he began to preach to them where there was few of the Jews and several of the Gentiles and even the prominent women of that city that believed. And the Jews were stirred up against him and so they drove Paul out of the synagogue and wouldn't let him preach there any longer, but that wasn't enough. They came and they were ready to kill him and so by night, they had to sneak him out of Thessalonica and that's when he went down to Berea and he began to teach there and the Jews up in Thessalonica heard that he was teaching there and they traveled down to Berea and they drove him out of there also. They were serious about putting an end to Paul doing his work of advancing Christianity in their town. Now imagine if you were one of the Christians left behind. Imagine if you're one of the Christians left back in Thessalonica. You're only a babe in Christ. And you're surrounded by those that hate Christianity. Isn't it beautiful that when you read 1 Thessalonians, you read him writing to some individuals that in the first chapter, in verse 3 and 4, he says that when he remembers them in his prayers, that he thinks of their faith and their love and their hope. He talks about them being very faithful and about the great influence they've already had and what would have only been a few months. Let that sink in. The text we're going to read tonight, he was writing to Christians that were only a few months old in Christianity. So it makes sense that there would be so many doctrinal things, especially things pertaining to life after death, that they would still be confused about. They would still have further questions about. And so Paul takes the time to write this letter to try to encourage them and to try to clarify a few things for them. And so let's read this in the fourth chapter. What we see here is a letter written to comfort those who have lost Christian loved ones. It's just a beautiful thought. They were discouraged. And, and let me go ahead and say this so that if you don't know this, you can see this as you're reading it and maybe you can pick out more as we read it and, and several of you will probably already know this. You see, their idea, and, and if you want to just flip through a few pages with me, they were keenly aware of the fact that as a Christian, their task or their joy, if you will, of being a Christian wasn't. Well, I understand that if you become a Christian, most faithful Christians have a nice house, three or four bedrooms and a few bathrooms, and most of them have pretty nice, dependable cars, and most of them have a good job because you have all these moral ethics that come into Christianity, and it just seems to advance you in life, and so I want to become a Christian so that I can have that. Think about it. They became a Christian in a society where the one that converted them got driven out of town so that he could live. If there was no benefit to you on this earth being a Christian, would you be a Christian? I wonder those babes in Christ that were only a few months old, how much more advanced in ways than they are of some of us today. Their whole drive to be a Christian was that they believed that Jesus was coming again and what he offered was so far advanced from this world that they would give up anything on this earth that they had to give up to be ready when Jesus came. We don't have slides on this right here, but if you want to flip through, I want you to notice this. Notice toward the end of every chapter in 1 Thessalonians, what do we read about? See there in 1 Thessalonians 1, we read in verse 9, 
For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to come to you, and now you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now what did Paul say they were doing? They turned from idols to turn to God to do what? Wait. We are waiting on the coming of the Lord. There is nothing more significant in our life than to be ready for the coming Lord. Let's go to the end of the second chapter. At the end of the second chapter, let's read 19 and 20. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. What does Paul say that's the most important thing to him? To see them prepared at what? The coming of the Lord. When you go toward the end of the third chapter, let's read verse 13. We're picking up in the middle of a sentence, but look at 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at our coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Now we're about to study the end of the fourth chapter. We drop down to the fifth chapter and let's read verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the communication that Paul had with them? The emphasis over and over and over is, are you going to be ready for the coming? Now with that in mind, they had great concern for the individuals that were faithful Christians that were waiting for the coming of the Lord, but they died. This passage is going to say they fell asleep. They died before the Lord came. They're young Christians. They're trying to figure this out. If we're waiting on the coming of the Lord and we die first, does that mean we've lost the opportunity to live with God for an eternity? And so let's read these great words of comfort to see what they were taught. Let's go to the fourth chapter. Let's pick up at verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, see he's establishing the, the, the fact of a resurrection here, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. When we look at 1 Thessalonians 4 and 13, we see the reality that we're going to grieve. Now there have been some that have misunderstood this very verse. And they have understood it to teach that when a loved one dies that's in Christ, we should not grieve at all. 
That's just not what it says. I want you to read it again just so we can clearly see what the Word of God says. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. And so he's not saying that we'll have no sorrow. He's saying our sorrow will not be the same as those who have a loved one that passes away and that loved one that passes away is not a child of God. There is an entirely different sorrow for those that pass away. If the one that's passed away is a child of God versus if the one that passes away is not a child of God. Look, we're always going to have sorrow. I'd like for you to think with me for just a moment about our Lord Jesus Christ. In John the 11th chapter, we have the touching story because there's a closeness there between Jesus and one of his best friends, Lazarus, and then Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. And you know the story, and this is a real quick version of it. Lazarus passes away and Jesus gets word of it and he waits until a few days after he has been dead and buried before Jesus arrives on the scene. Now you know that by the end of that chapter, what he's going to do is he is going to resurrect Lazarus from the dead. But what Jesus sees when he walks into that scene is he sees sisters that are grieving because their loved one has passed away. And he looks around and he sees a Jewish community that has surrounded them and they too are grieving. And he says, where have you laid him? Take me to his grave. And they took Jesus to the grave. And Jesus looked at all of the sorrow that had been created by death. Now note this, he knew he was going to resurrect him. So why does John eleven thirty five 35 say Jesus wept? You see, he saw, Jesus saw what the enemy of death was doing to the survivors. He saw the pain in the sisters. He saw the, the grief in the Jewish community that was surrounding. Listen, there's a reason why Another passage that talks about the Lord's second coming. It's 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter and verse 26. He says that the enemy of death, when Jesus comes again, that the enemy of death shall be destroyed. And he even says it's the last enemy that Jesus will destroy. So what's the message? The message is that Jesus, while he was on this earth, he grieved when he saw what death did to loved ones. Even though the one that passed away was a righteous child of God, and even the surrounding ones, the sisters were righteous also in the sight of God. It's just not realistic to say, well, I'm a faithful Christian, and the, my loved one that's passed away is a faithful Christian, and, and, and we're just not going to grieve this. It's not human. I don't even know if you could say it's righteous. It's cold-hearted. Now, is there something to celebrate? Absolutely, there's something to celebrate. To celebrate the fact that there's a great resurrection. And here, in this passage, what he says is that the one that passes away, it leaves us with great hope. It leaves us with great hope for them. That there is going to be that great resurrection. And so you see what we have here, if you will, is we have a balancing act. And I don't mean something that's real hard to do, but I'm just saying it's a balance of the extremes. The grief is for us. We grieve because the one we love has passed away and is no longer in our daily life. But our grief is not for the child of God who has passed away because they are going to be better than they have ever been. 
Let me give you David Shannon's opinion because some of you may have something to do with my funeral one day. These people that say, I tell you what, we're going to get together and, and my loved one was a faithful Christian and we're not going to have a funeral. We're going to have a celebration of life. If you want to do that for you and your loved one and that's what does good for you, God bless you in those endeavors. And if I'm a part of that funeral service, I'll help you in every way that I can. But when you plan David Shannon's funeral, I would be a little bit honored if you'd cry a little bit. <laughs> it's not realistic to say, I don't want to deal with death. I don't want to think about the loss. If Jesus Christ can go to the tomb of his loved one and he can weep, there's something powerful about living a balanced life. Should we celebrate the life of the deceased one and the fact that if they were faithful, they have the hope of eternal life? Absolutely. Not to minimize that at all. Should we ignore the fact that we need to deal with death? Ecclesiastes 7, what does it say? Better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. For the wise man will lay it to his heart, for that is the end of all men. The wise man wrote and said, it's good for us to go into funeral services and cry because it makes us think about that is the end of all men. Solomon, what are you trying to get us to do? I'm trying to get you to think about your soul. You're not going to live in this body all your life, all your existence. You have a soul that's going to leave this body and it's going to be in an eternal existence somewhere. And Solomon says, going into those places of grief, it's good for us. It helps us to live that balanced life. And so it's not speaking out of both sides of your mouth, but it's the reality the best funerals we can go to are the funerals where on one hand we can celebrate and on the other hand we can cry and we can mourn. So he writes to these individuals. They're young Christians. They don't know how to deal with all of this. And he doesn't say to them, do not grieve. But he does say, do not grieve as those who have no hope. Why? Because there's a wonderful, wonderful bit of news. Let's skip a few slides. Let's go to the first Thessalonians, the fourth chapter. Let's look at verse 14. This is the very next verse that we're working through. What is it that he had to offer? It was the resurrection. First Thessalonians 4 and 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now think about that for just a moment. Do you believe it? And see, he's asking these young Christians that it wasn't that long ago that they believed it and said, I want to respond to it. I want Jesus to be my Savior. And, you know, they went through that same symbolic act to become a Christian. They believed that they were dead spiritually and that they were buried in a watery grave and that they came up alive. They came up resurrected spiritually. They believed in a resurrection or they wouldn't be Christians. And so here he's not trying to teach them something that they don't know. He's reminding them of something to say, let's talk about the resurrection. Listen. They were young Christians. A lot of people didn't believe in a resurrection. Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. A lot of pagans don't believe in resurrections. And so he's going back to, again, one of the unique and beautiful parts of our Christian faith. We really do believe in a resurrection, don't we? 
You really need to stop and ask yourself that. Listen, we're not talking about Disney here. We're not talking about a fairy tale. I know that you and I have not seen it with our own eyes, but we need to be able to answer in our own mind and by our faith, do you believe in a resurrection? Do you believe that this body will not exist, but your soul will exist in a body that is eternal and you will live, live somewhere for an eternity? Eternal life if it's with God, eternal damnation if it's separated from God. That's where he's beginning here. You do believe in the resurrected Lord, don't you? Because if you believe in the resurrected Lord, you need to understand this. And he starts explaining some things here that they probably had not heard before. I want to I read the last part of verse 14 again. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now, where were the bodies of those that sleep in Jesus? They were buried in a grave. So who is this that he's bringing with him when Jesus comes again? That's the soul. You know, when we die, the soul separates from the body. The body goes into the grave. The soul goes and waits for the judgment. And so when Jesus comes again, he's going to bring with him those who have already been asleep. Those who have passed away. Can you imagine when they started reading this, how I assure you, if they understood what they were reading at this very moment, they started smiling. Because they were worried, probably, that, that they were going to hear, oh, if you die, you're non-existent. You're, you're out of existence. You, you've lost your chance. And Jesus is going to come again, and those that are alive are going to enjoy heaven. Nobody else is going to enjoy it. And now it starts dawning on them. You mean those that have already died, Jesus is going to bring back in judgment. Now, if you want to put a little more complete study on your own, go and join right here where we are here with 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, beginning about verse 50 and on. You remember there we read also about the great resurrection, but you remember flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven? And there we've got a resurrection, but you remember it's the bodies that are, that, that are mortal that resurrect, but immediately in the twinkling of an eye, there's a change and the mortal becomes immortal. And so see, God's bringing the souls back. And as there's a resurrection of the bodies, they are changed and the new body is joined with the soul. And so they're starting to put this together and they're starting, surely there had to be relief by, as they start reading this. Let's look at verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. And that's where he put it in black and white. That's where he emphasized it. He says, so you're worried that you're going to make it and those that died are not going to make it. Trust me, you're not going to have one up on them at all. And really what he's implying in a sense is kind of like they have one up on you. And so now let's go to verse 16 and let's see just a little bit more about what the procedure is going to be at this second coming. In the first Thessalonians 4 and 16, for the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and what's going to happen first? And the dead in Christ will rise first. And now notice there's an order here. Then we who are alive, talking about those that are still alive on the earth when Jesus comes, and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Notice 
We have a dissension here of Jesus, but not all the way to the earth. Notice here in this verse, he sent it to the clouds. Notice, we met him in the air. You will not read one verse, one sentence, one phrase that ever teaches that Jesus Christ will set foot on this earth again. That's premillennialism. It's a false doctrine that's gained a lot of ground in the last several decades. And, and just read your Bible cover to cover and you'll see. It does not exist. There's not going to be an earthly reign of Jesus. He's not, we don't ever read of him coming to this earth again. But here we have the end of time. Jesus comes down to the clouds. We rise to meet him in the air. But what was the order? The dead in Christ, they were resurrected first. Then those that were alive were called up. It's that same word that in John the 10th chapter where he says no one can pluck you out of his hand. It's that very same word. They're, we're plucked, we're, we're brought up. But notice, this isn't some kind of silent thing where other people don't realize what's happening. This is the end of time. Was this very silent? When the Lord came with a shout, when the Lord came with the archangel, when the Lord came with a trumpet. Listen, this was a blast where the whole world was watching and interacting with this event. Let's continue reading. Skip a couple more slides. First Thessalonians 4. You see there in 16 and 17 that we just read that the end of what we have on that slide there of 17, that is not the end of the verse. So go to the next slide and you're going to see the rest of this verse. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, the last part of the verse is a sentence on its own. And it says, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Out of this passage here, this is the only passage that really gives us insight into heaven. Now, I understand if someone would say, well, that's kind of disappointing. I'd kind of like to know more about heaven than that. And there's some other passages that tell us a little bit more about heaven. But you do realize this passage tells us the best part about heaven. Think about that phrase. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. It doesn't get better than that. I don't know what heaven's going to look like exactly. When I think of some of the great architectural work on this earth, I stand amazed. We could take JKF and combine him with every other architect that's ever lived and put out the most supreme city block that mankind has ever created. And God could take in one stroke of his hand, create a city that would far outshine it. All he would have to do is speak a word. And can you imagine what it would look like? What does a city look like where everything in it is created by God? Every structure. Where the light of it is God's glory. Where there is no night. Where there's no need for locks. Where there's no need for a hospital or an emergency room or a nursing home, or a hospice care. There's not any need for Kleenexes, for cemeteries, for funeral chapels. What is a place going to be like, like heaven? Nowhere on earth. There's nowhere on earth we can compare it. 
And yet out of all of the greatness of heaven, all of the greatness of heaven, nothing will surpass the fact that being in God's presence is amazing. And so he closes with the very short next verse as he says, Now, comfort one another with these words. Our human nature is when someone's hurting, we want to comfort them. We want to make them feel better. I've thought hard how to say this, that it would make sense with impact, and I really don't know how to say it to make sense with impact, but in my business, I'm around death a lot. And I'm around the survivors of death even more. And you want to give your family the greatest gift you will ever give them? You die a faithful child of God and leave them hope. And you will have comforted your own family in your own passing. There is no greater comfort than to know that your loved one is a child of God. You have a soul. It's going to leave this body one day. And it's going to spend an eternity with God or separated from God. And it's in your hands. And what you'll do with it will either in your passing leave behind a family that will forever grieve because you are not a child of God or you'll leave behind a family that their grief will be so small compared to death with no hope. I don't know if it's true. It was told as if it was. A father was passing away and he had four children and three of them were very faithful Christians and one was not at all. And they were telling him his goodbyes. And each child that leaned over, he would just simply say, good night. As if he would see them again. But when that one child came that was unfaithful, he hugged him a little longer and he said goodbye. Thinking he would never see him again. soul focus this life is so short and what's waiting on us is so long this life there's nothing here that is worth trading eternity with God nothing we receive a letter from Paul a letter that says, let me comfort you. When you die in the Lord, 
There's a lot of hope. Tonight, do you know that hope? Tonight, will you leave that hope as a gift to your children? Tonight, if, if you look death square in the eyes, can you say, I'm fine with that. Looking my eternity, I'm fine to pass away right now. I look forward to being with God for an eternity. And tonight, if you're not fine with that, get it right. Turn to your God. I really believe that that old saying is true. We're not ready to live until we're ready to die. You want to find a life worth living, you be comfortable and welcoming of your death. And that's when we find a life of purpose. Tonight, how can we help you? If there's any questions we can answer for you, we'd like to talk with you after services. If there's a response that you want to make publicly, maybe you're ready to be baptized into Christ. Maybe you want the prayers of the church. Maybe you want to repent and confess sins and, and pray forgiveness. However, we can help you. Let's leave here tonight comforted. Comforted. Because not only have we had a great resurrection in our future, but already we have a great resurrection spiritually now as we've been resurrected from sin.